We are not required to prove that the Book of Mormon is true or is an authentic record through external evidences, though there are many, many, many. Nobody ever used iron in the New World. Nobody has ever found pre-Columbian coinage, ever. If there were coins, they'd be chocolate beans. Why aren't chocolate beans mentioned in the uh, Book of Mormon? Copper alloys like brass in any form doesn't show up in Mesoamerica until at the earliest, 800 A.D. Gold doesn't show up in any way until seven or 800 A.D. You've got crops mentioned in the Book of Mormon that never existed in pre-Columbian America. All of these things would have produced pollen if they'd been grown by anybody. A lot of this stuff is windblown. It would fall onto ponds and lakes and get enclosed in sediments. Tremendous amounts of pollen work has been done. It never has been the case, nor is it now, that the studies of the learned will prove the Book of Mormon true or false. Silk, nothing. The seven-day calendar was unknown. They never had chariots. They had helmets, all right, but they weren't made out of brass, that's for sure. There's no evidence for horses, no evidence whatsoever for any kind of cattle. Pig, zero. Not one pig bone has ever shown up. Elephants, uh, there's nothing. I've never seen anything there that would convince me that these people have Middle Eastern DNA. We can read 95% of what the Maya themselves wrote. It's in Maya. It's not in Aramaic. It's, it's not Semitic. There are no Semitic words whatsoever in it. It's got no relation whatsoever with any languages that we know of in the old world. Basically, if you're looking for old world connections and looking at the Near East... You're looking in the wrong place. The Prophet Joseph Smith once said to his uh, colleague, if you live into the next century, you will see evidence for the Book of Mormon come forth in droves. It might happen. Yeah, and monkeys might fly out of my butt. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. Philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Look for the good in everything. Look for the people who will set your soul free. It always seems impossible until it's done. Look for the good in everyone. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Osland, and this is episode 685, Truth versus Fiction, Part 3. Who wrote the Book of Mormon? And this is the Solomon Spaulding piece of that series. This episode was released October 13th, 2013, nearly seven years ago. So, oh, thanks, Siri. Siri was listening. Nice. (laughs) Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Osland. And welcome to part two of our series, Who Wrote the Book of Mormon? Now, you just heard a series of clips from Emeritus Yale Professor Michael Coe, an expert on Mesoamerican archaeology. Now, these clips came from one of my favorite Mormon stories interviews of all time. So I want to thank John DeLynn for making this available. And if any listeners want to go hear the entire interview, check out Mormon Stories, episodes 268 to 270. Now, if you're listening to this, 
I assume that you've also listened to our part one interview with John Hamer, who discussed the single author theory of the Book of Mormon. Now, if you haven't listened to that yet, what are you doing here? So today I'm joined once again by Randy Snyder to interview Stanford professor Craig Criddle on the Spalding Rigdon theory of Book of Mormon authorship. Now, if you aren't wearing them right now, I want to encourage every single one of you to go put on your thinking caps, because this interview, it covers a lot of stuff. And Craig is a highly educated Stanford professor. You know, listening to him reminded me of sitting in lectures back in my college days, and even some of the challenges that I faced when I taught a few of these college classes myself. Now, Craig has this teaching style down, repeating key points multiple times so his students can take notes and prepare for the final exam. Key points multiple times, students taking notes, you got it, okay? So don't get lost in the way that he presents the information. Just take really good notes, and I'll do what I can to help you out along the way. There may even be a pop quiz. So without any further ado, let's get right to it. Well, let's start with uh, let's start uh, with Craig. Could you uh, let us know your background, your professional background? I'm a professor. Uh, I'm an engineer, environmental engineer, and my specialty is biotechnology. And I uh, so I do that. I run a research group at Stanford and teach at Stanford. I was raised in Holiday, Utah, and near Salt. It's a suburb of Salt Lake. I served a mission to. Uh, Uruguay in uh, for a couple of years. Uh, that was about 76 to 78. And then I, right, right before the priesthood ban was lifted. <laughs> actually, you know what's ironic about that is I got home the day the ban was lifted, and I just wow. I just spent a year on the border with Brazil and had told a lot of people, or actually dropped, we dropped families, and, and we, we, had, we made up, I mean, we had little lines that, I mean, I'm sort of embarrassed to say this, but I, I helped create apologetics for that situation. It was, I, I just, it just was bad, and I couldn't believe it. I got home, and the day I got home, they announced the, the lifting of the ban. Oh, yeah. Uh, guess what? You know, like any good college course, you can't just rely on lectures alone. What about your textbooks? Well, if you want to catch up on some light reading, you're in luck. Craig and his fellow colleagues have put together a website called mormonleaks.com. You know, like that WikiLeaks site, except for Mormons. Or more specifically, for the Spalding-Rigdon theory of Book of Mormon authorship. Now, this is a complicated story with a lot of moving parts. So Craig has put together a bunch of PowerPoint slides arranged in different episodes. There are currently six episodes, and I'll summarize each one of them for you as we move along with this podcast. But for now... Write this down, mormonleaks.com, six episodes, Spalding Rigdon Theory, a lot of moving parts. Okay, go. Yeah, yeah, that was a lot of work. And uh, by, by our little team of people, you know, especially uh, uh, the person who was preparing the slides, she just, oh, she was working really late into the night after she put her kids to bed and she's just... You know, sacrificed a lot. How many people do you have on that team? There's three of us, three, wow. <laughs> including, including myself. Yeah. So you know, it's basically a little teeny team of people, and uh, 
So that's it. That's all we have. Well, it's yeah. a it's a really nice way to present the information. It's pretty complex, you know. Like <laughs> I was I was going through and trying to connect all the dots to everything, and it's helpful to have the slides there. I, I kept going back and rereading things, and uh, it's it's a pretty complex uh, story there. Well, that that's 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 uh, you know that's a problem actually. Yeah, <laughs> because when you have a story that probably is really truly complex, and you want to tell it. Uh, people don't want to listen to all of that. Yeah. You know, it's just it's just too much. Yeah. And so, actually, our strategy right now is just try to present the story as in as we understand it with as much evidence as we can, and then go back and pair it back to a simpler story. Yeah. So how how long how long did you stay in the church after you got back from your mission? Oh, I was um, I was pretty I was pretty well brainwashed. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I stayed in pretty, pretty, for a pretty long time. I Basically, as I started to get more into science and understanding science and thinking about, uh, you know, things uh, about the age of the earth and such and, and Noah's Ark and things like that, yeah. I don't, basically dismissed it intellectually. Uh, what prompted me to leave eventually was that the, I started realizing that I found out these things that implicated Rigdon in my mind, and I, and I felt that it was going to be... Uh, likely that I would be excommunicated for publishing the stuff I was about to. Oh, really? Lease? Yeah, oh. I thought I would probably be excommunicated, and so I, I, I didn't want to embarrass my family. Actually, I think yeah. that was what it was. I just said, okay, I've got to, I've got to resign, and so I wrote a, I got thirty-page resignation letter, and then I thirty pages. I, I would say it was at least that long, and then I, and, and I had it sitting on my desk for the longest time, and and then finally I, uh, I have, I, I finally just. Uh, Pared it down to one paragraph and <laughs> sent it off. It was like a, it was a kind of a strange feeling. I, 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 all this stuff, I, I really wrote it. I think it was cathartic somehow to yeah. explain all the reasons why right. <laughs> I yeah. needed to do this. And then I thought, no one's going to care. No one's going to care no at all. No one's going to read it. No one's, no one's going to read, read it. it. Why, why am I doing this? And then I finally, oh, forget it. And I'll just put, I'll put a simple paragraph and yeah. drop it in the mail. That's smart. That's smart. But, you know, writing it out, like you said, that cathartic experience, I think a lot of people... Uh, go through that as well. So, did I get catch it right that the things that we're going to be talking about tonight, like with with uh, Solomon Spalding, Sidney Rigdon, those implications, that's what ultimately led you to leave the church because you thought you were going to be excommunicated for publishing these findings. Oh, I was sure I would be excommunicated. Yeah. I was sure. I was absolutely certain I would be. So, yeah. so what what puts you on this trail in the first place? Well, okay, so. Uh, so in the year 2000, um, my father, my, my then father-in-law, he's, he's since passed away and he was, um, he was very uh, diligent, diligent in the church, uh, you know, serving, I think his third mission or something like that in, in Europe. And, you know, we kind of had this exchange and, uh, he, he, one thing he asked me at the very end was, so, so, okay, how do you explain the how do you explain the Book of Mormon? You know, that was his big thing. Mm-hmm. How do you explain the Book of Mormon? I, and I said, up to that time, I'd always just thought Smith as sole author made was enough, you know, for me. I just thought it was enough. And I'd even argued that way on the Internet, actually, that Smith was the author. But then he, he started he started me thinking about it. And um, so then I thought, I'm going to really dig into this and see if I can understand more about it. So Did he bring up, you know, like, how, uh, how do you explain the multiple voices and the multiple authors because that's that's kind of an lds position yeah. that they say of course there's going to be multiple voices in in the book of mormon that's one of the evidences that J- joseph smith didn't write it did, did he take that approach with you 
No, no. Yeah, it was more like uh, I think the the approach was: Do you really think a, a, a young man, uneducated farm boy, yeah, an educated yeah. man that could write a book as complex as the Book of Mormon? That's right. that was his position. And 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 while I did think it was conceivable, um, I thought that given the state of what, what I understood to be his actual temperament, I, I thought his temperament wouldn't wasn't favorable for that. He just seemed uh, too much of a he didn't seem studious to me. Um, he, mm-hmm. he seemed like a man who wanted attention and wouldn't you know, make a, a, a large book like that. Joseph it's, Smith seemed, seemed yeah, like that. Yeah, too. Yeah. Joseph Smith seemed like that kind of person. He didn't seem like a studious individual to me. And then I started thinking, well, what is there any other explanation? And so I hunted around and I ran into, there was a guy named Randy Jordan and uh, Jeff Hamill, Hamill, Hamill. Yeah, I think that's right. Who were they were posting on the recovery from Mormonism site at that time about this other theory that I'd never heard about except once. I think I saw it in the in the improvement era or something where they said Spalding theory debunked again or some such yeah, thing. Right. And I remember um, and I and and I saw, started reading what Jeff and Randy wrote, Randy Jordan and Jeff, and on the um, RFM site, and I thought, oh, this this is I, I don't, I've never heard this stuff and. And it's really interesting. And, and I started looking deeper into it and then learned about Dale's stuff. And I started reading Dale Broadhurst stuff. And I thought, this is, this is substantial. This isn't, this isn't just something you can just dismiss with a wave of the hand and say it's been dismissed. Uh, and so then I started thinking, but if it's true, there should be certain things that are, I could predict. And, and, and I knew that you know we, we do work with um, – we, we track microbes in my work. We track communities, microbes, microbial communities. We look at microbes in communities. We that we can track their DNA. Actually, we can look for their DNA in, inside communities. And and I really thought um, that that probably was true. You know, there's sort of characteristic DNA signals for each species that we're trying to track. And I thought there would probably be characteristic uh, word usage patterns for authors. And I remember, too, this, this studies from BYU. When I got back from my mission, they started announcing these studies from BYU that were, you know, about how they'd proven through word prints that there were many voices in the Book of Mormon. And, and I remembered that, and I thought, uh, yeah, maybe they were just 19th century voices. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. and so, then I start thinking, okay, then, I, then if that's the case, then some of the same kinds of approaches that we use for microbial community analysis might be used here that got me really intrigued and so then i uh i i did some little things on my on my own um i made up my own techniques and started testing some things and 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 then there was one night where i was uh sitting in bed with the laptop and i i was using excel spreadsheets you know and i made at that point i had a sort of a model going for what i thought was the the word the word print you might say for sydney rigdon and uh i I kind of made a bet with myself where I thought it might see it, and and then I. Uh, so when you say word print, this is like the equivalent of uh, like word DNA that yeah. you see in a microbe. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's similar in the sense that what we're looking at here are the frequencies of word use, and everybody's different. Uh, you you two guys, uh, you probably have different word prints. Randy has very different word prints than I do. I say fucking shit a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Well, my wife's teaching me how to do that. <laughs> nice. So, you know, one of the thoughts that I had as I was looking through, um, you know, your findings, I, I read a book a few years ago called Who Wrote the Bible? Um, I think yeah. it's Richard Friedman. And 
that was the first that I had uh, started learning that there were like the E sources and the J sources and P and D and, you know, the, the different things. It, it kind of reminded me of that a little bit when I was looking through the slides on Mormon leaks. Yeah. Had you come across that? Did that influence uh, your approach at all? Or was it was it more just the, the, the microbiology approach? I think it's more, I was more influenced by my own field. Uh, yeah. I just thought, and I thought, and also I was influenced by what the BYU guys had done. I, I thought, well, you know, I, 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 I had an uneasy feeling when I heard them make that announcement when I was younger, you yeah. know, I, I had an uneasy feeling like this doesn't make sense to me. And, and, and I, and I guess there was a part of me that was like, at that point I, I was well past Mormonism intellectually in terms of in a worldview, worldview. Right. So I passed that. I was sure that it wasn't correct. Absolutely sure. And and then the and the question was, well, then what were they doing? What were those BYU guys doing? You know, I guess so. There was that piece there too. I was sort of interested in what they were doing and what. Why was it that they were? Why were they making that statement so so strongly? I mean, uh, I think Hinckley, uh, Gordon B. Hinckley, he globbed onto that yeah. and. You know, he used that. He he used that uh, those findings from BYU to as if it were scientific evidence for the proof of the Book of Mormon, and and I was, uh, you know, that as as a researcher that that kind of upset me. I, I guess there was a part of me that wanted to just um, address that issue. Yeah, I got a question about the word printing analysis um, among the field of linguistics. Linguistics, um, how. What is the status of that, uh, of its reliability? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is used in uh, various fields, you know, forensic or, or, or basically criminology and different applications. There are a lot of applications, actually, of authorship attribution, uh, and it's been successfully used. And you can prove it to yourself when you start using the techniques by taking a, a text from someone you know who it is and then dividing it up in pieces and then pretending you don't know some part of it. And seeing if you can predict the author uh, when you when you know who it is, but you're pretending you don't, you know. And mm-hmm. then you can go back, and if you have a whole set of um, candidate authors, you can say which of the candidate authors matches each of the set of unknown texts that I've just created. Now they're really not unknown; you know what they are, and you can see how mm-hmm. accurately you're able to predict what they are. And and it's about you know when we did the Book of Mormon one, it was about eighty. Our accuracy on the the method we were using was eighty nine percent. So. On the and, you use con- and you use controls as well, right? Yeah, yeah, we had controls, and so we were getting eighty. So that means like almost, you know, almost nine out of ten times you would get it right, essentially, if the text really belonged to that person, and if, and if uh, you have the the right set of candidate authors in your in your uh, in your pocket. In other words, you have to know what the word print is, so to speak, or the word usage pattern is for a given author in order to test for that author. You have to know the fingerprint before you go looking for the fingerprints, you know, among a, 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 a collection of fingerprints that you don't know. You have to have a collection of fingerprints that you do know and then find the right. best match. And that's what we were doing. Okay, pop quiz time. What is a word print? Is it A, a picture that you hang on a wall with a, just a single word or phrase on it like, no, not this one. Or B, a way of clustering the frequency of a known author's common word usage to establish a sort of fingerprint that can then determine a document's authorship. Or C, ah, heck, let's just say it's B and move on. Okay, so let me summarize quickly a few of these episodes that are on Mormon Leaks because we pretty much just covered a lot of what's in episode one. 
So episode one focuses on the contributions of Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery to the Book of Mormon. First, it critiques the official LDS version of how it was written, and it highlights the complexity of the story itself with the recursive nested stories within stories and the contribution of multiple editors or narrators, you know, the internal characters, Nephi, Mormon, and Moroni. And then it raises problems with the single author explanation, specifically three key problems, that it ignores historical evidence that Smith had help creating the Book of Mormon, uh, that it ignores textual analysis using word printing, and that it relies on eyewitness testimony that shouldn't be trusted. It claims that using word print analysis, about 48 chapters of the Book of Mormon can be attributed to a combination of Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. And this is basically episode one. It's about 65 slides. So the conversation that we're about to have now with Craig will cover the information that you you can find in episode two on Mormon Leaks. So let me summarize episode two. Episode two introduces Solomon Spaulding, a man who wrote two unpublished stories about 20 years before the Book of Mormon was published. Let me repeat that. Two unpublished stories, two manuscripts. Okay. Now, there are affidavits from people who claim that they recognize names like Nephi and Lehi and Lamanites and Jaredites and a bunch of other things as coming from these Spaulding manuscripts. However, only the first one of these two manuscripts actually survives to this day. It's often called the Oberlin Manuscript, or sometimes Manuscript Story, and it does not evidence these strong similarities with the Book of Mormon. So it's believed that this second manuscript, which is often called Manuscript Found, is the one referred to in the affidavits, the one with the strong Book of Mormon similarities. So that's episode two. Now, also in episode two, they go into the methodology for performing textual analysis using word printing a little more clearly, and they state that about 76 chapters of the Book of Mormon match Spaulding's word print. Now, that's episode two. It consists of 85 slides, and I'll jump in again later in the podcast when it's time to introduce episode three. But now, back to you, Craig. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, so Solomon Spaulding, um, he, he, lived, he died in 1816. Let's start with his death and kind of move back a little bit. So he died in 1816. And just to put things, some, some firm pins in the map, uh, 1816, death of Solomon Spaulding. And then you've got, uh, you know, 1830, the publication of the Book of Mormon. So 14 years uh, gap between his death and the appearance of the Book of Mormon. And then 1827 is right the beginning of the Book of Mormon uh, really coming to light. In 1827, we have uh, announcements about that. So those are some important dates to keep in mind. And then Spaulding, in terms of his background, he wasn't that remarkable. He was a Revolutionary War soldier. He was educated at Dartmouth. For a while, he was a, a preacher, but stopped that, became a businessman, um, had a back injury, um, and so that made it so that he, his business didn't succeed, and he needed a way to uh, subsist and uh, started writing things. He thought that was a skill he had and that he could write, so he started writing. And um, he, and for entertainment, he would read some of his, well, for for his neighbors, he would they would gather around and he would occasionally read excerpts from his manuscript and or different manuscripts that he was writing. And um, so the first manuscript that he apparently began was the one was one that we do have today. And so that can be used for text analysis. And um, that uh, that manuscript is stored at uh, the Oberlin College. So it's sometimes called the Oberlin Manuscript. 
And it's also called the Roman story. It has various names because it's talking about a group of people that come over uh, from uh, Constantine, you know, from, from in Constantine's era, they come over from uh, sort of Roman. It's, it's Romans coming to America, essentially into the heartland of America. And, and then it tells this story about uh, that includes, includes a love story includes, and then at the end it has these big humongous war scenes um, it has a it has a character who's kind of like a messiah, I guess you could say, as a part of the story. Um, and there's there's a whole lot of features to it that some of them are nothing like the Book of Mormon, so much so that you would just say, "Oh, this could have nothing to do with the Book of Mormon" when you read them. And then others where you say, "Well, it could have something to do with the Book of Mormon." Like when you get to the war scenes, it's more like that. When you talk at the beginning, he talks about. Uh, it, it sounds a lot like Joseph Smith going into, a, you know, recovering an ancient document and dictating it or translating it. So can I ask you, I, I, I want to yeah. know with the, the story, with the Roman part of it, did, yeah. did the, was that like the, the Lehi family story where they branch no, out and no. become the tribes or did, did no. they encounter natives there yeah. and those are the ones that they kind of join up with here? Because yeah. I, I know it's like the, the Ohio uh, yeah, Indians and the Kentucky right. Indians, right? It's kind of those right. two sides. Right, right. So the story is uh, not at all like the Book of Mormon, really, in that regard. You know, it's it doesn't have any of the names of the Book of Mormon. Right. It doesn't have um, it doesn't have the use of the word "it came to pass." Yeah. The phrase "it came to pass" it does not have that. It it's uh, it just it, it's. You know, I don't blame people who read it and say it's not like the Book of Mormon. I would draw the same conclusion if I were just, if that's all I did was look at the plot and the words that are used, you know, I would say, well, it isn't written in the style of the Bible, which, you know, the Book of Mormon is written in the style of the Bible. The Book of Mormon does use it came to pass. It doesn't. Uh, It, you know, the Book of Mormon has um, these specific names in it, um, you know, Nephi, Lehi, and so on. None of those names appear in uh, the Oberlin Manuscript. And so it's reasonable to conclude this manuscript um, is not the basis for the Book of Mormon. But but that's not your claim, is it? I mean, you, that's not our claim at all. Your claim no. is that there's another manuscript. Uh, so yeah, so, oh, uh, it, uh, I think it's important to note that uh, the name of it is manuscript story, and uh, that's right. And uh, it has been renamed by the RLDS and particularly the LDS Church as yeah. manuscript found as kind of like. A, a clever deception to throw, you know, to, to basically discredit the Spalding theory. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Yes. It upsets me actually. And in fact, it upset <laughs> people, it upset people in the 19th century. And I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, that's the, that's the first line of defense almost. Yeah. Is to say, it's already, there was just one story that Spalding produced. This is it. And end of story. Go, go back to sleep. So, so in, in, in that story we have, we can look at, it's available yeah. online, Oberlin College. Right. So, so people can go yeah. and look at it if they want to. But then there's, there's a second manuscript that we don't have, but, but you, right. there, there's affidavits of people talking about it. Is that what it yeah. is? And, yes, and yes, so, yes. So why don't you talk about that a little bit, Craig? Well, okay. First, I want to say, though, that the one that we do have yeah. in Oberlin College, we can use that to get the word print for Spalding. Okay. Right. I mean, that's important. And and not only his word print, but it turns out that there's other things about Spalding, the way he did things, like how he constructed names and fra- and who he copied. Actually, who he plagiarized is important. And Ta- Tom D'Onofrio has shown that. You can look at um, uh, you can look at uh, the, the Book of Mormon and you can find examples of a lot of different ki- sources of plagiarism, many sources. 
And, uh, of course, the Bible being number one. <laughs> but then when you go past the Bible, you can also find other plagiarisms. And, um, you know, so there's the chroniclers of the Revolutionary War, like Mercy Otis Warren, who, if you look at Oberlin manuscript, um, there's evidence that there was plagiarism of her. And, um, and that you find plagi- the same kind of plagiarisms in the Book of Mormon and in specific parts of the Book of Mormon. That's, that's what's important is that it's, it's not just spread all over the place. It's like there's specific parts of the Book of Mormon. So not just uh, can we get his, work, his, his style of writing, but we can also get information about, you know, how did he compose names? We can see a pattern in the, in the Oberlin manuscript and we say, does the same, are names created in the same way? in the Book of Mormon? And if so, uh, where are those names appearing? Do they show up in the parts of the, of the manuscript that we are attributing to Spalding? And it's, to me, that's one of the strongest lines of, uh, or, or one, one of the strong uh, points in this text analysis is that it's not a standalone thing. We're, we're able to line up evidence and say, well, look, we're seeing the same parts of the Book of Mormon lighting up as Spalding each time. If it was what we're talking that, about here is, is yeah. like Ammon, Chain, and then the next guy's name is Ammonihah. Yeah, yeah, a root, yeah, a root yeah, yeah. word. Yeah, and yeah, you add so, a prefix or a suffix. Yes, yes, right, exactly. So there's this methodology he had for creating names, and and you know, um, omni, um, omner, you know, that would be one. Com, there's all these com, com, comora. I mean, all sorts or of Antimurg. Um, yeah. There's a whole bunch yeah. of names like that. The Eha words are some of my favorite because I. I sometimes think Spalding was satirizing the Bible. And so, you know, he would add stuff and put eha on the end. Uh, so <laughs> to me, I just, I think that the eha words are kind of funny, actually. So, so after, so according to, according to witnesses of the era of that time period, uh, Spalding uh, started writing, he, he wrote this initial manuscript, which is the one we have now, the Oberlin manuscript, and then he abandoned it. And then he uh, started another manuscript, which was his, 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 his magnus opa. It was what he was really proud of. And this was a manuscript found. And can I ask you a question? You, yeah. you say he abandoned it. Because yeah. I, I looked at the end. It doesn't even look like there's an end to it. It looks like <laughs> it kind of cuts off. So that, yeah, totally. <laughs> that's really what it is. Totally. Okay. He just abandoned yeah. it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He just said, okay, I've had enough of this. <laughs> okay. He's like, done with that. Right. And then he said, I'm going to do something really great. I'm going to make some money out of it. And so he starts working on this really his big his 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 real thing, and the and then he started reading it to the neighbors, and the neighbors started gathering around to listen to him, and he would read it to them, or else visitors would come in and read what he was doing. And so these are these are a lot of people actually, as it turns out, many people heard him speak about what he was doing, and they even got excited about it. The kids would call him, they'd say they called him old came to pass. <laughs> You know, because he was using the phrase came to pass a lot. It came to pass that this, it came to pass that that. According to these eyewitnesses, he used that phrase a lot. And if anyone has read the Book of Mormon, they know that that's a common phrase in the Book of Mormon. And he also used names like Nephi. And uh, there's a whole series of names that we we all recognize as Mormon names. Lamanites, Nephi, and, and you know a whole bunch of them. And, and these names are, uh, we're not, they don't appear in the Oberlin Manuscript. But according to these eyewitness accounts, they that those were names that they, they recognized uh, when the Book of Mormon when they first heard the Book of Mormon read, they recognized those names, and so they said, you know, that was so. They, one of the interesting things is how this accusation came up that Spalding yeah, because was, the 
the, the Book of Mormon was was spread out throughout the entire Northeast at this time. In no other town did anyone say, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. That sounds like, uh, you know, Joe Blow down the street. Yeah. It, it, it happened in, I don't know how, know how to pronounce it, but it was. Conduit. Yeah, Conduit. Conduit or New Salem, Conduit, Ohio. That's where it happened. I mean, the missionaries go in. Um, it was uh, Samuel Smith and Orson Hyde. They go in, and they go to preach, and they start preaching, and a guy stands up in the back and says, you're reading from the, the book of my old buddy, Solomon Spaulding. And what was the I, reaction of the missionaries? Did they, like, uh, leave quickly? or? <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think I've ever read the account of what they did exactly in response to that. I don't think there's any record of that. But Nehemiah King was the name of the guy who stood up in the back. And also John Spaulding, the brother of Solomon Spaulding, he had a similar reaction. I mean, both of them were like, what? Seriously? You're using my, you're, you know, he, John's like, really, my brother's work is being used this way? How did that happen? And so there was this there was this group of people that started talking like this. Now, what's interesting is they didn't know anything about Sidney Rigdon. These people knew nothing about Sidney Rigdon. All they knew was that this sounds like Solomon Spaulding's book. That's why he was reading to us. And 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 they were kind of ticked. And then separately, separately. So the Book of Mormon published in 1830. Not very long after that, very soon after that, in Ohio, the first allegation surfaces that Sidney Rigdon was the likely author. Now that's in Ohio. In 1831, first, the first allegations, you know, actually the very first allegations were Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. But then after that, right after that, the nurse, next person who's named is, is, is uh, Sidney Rigdon. And no one knows that Sidney Rigdon has any connection to Solomon Spaulding. No one does when they make that allegation. And later, the, these other people who al- allege that Solomon Spaulding is somehow connected to the Book of Mormon, uh, and, and, they, and they're upset about it because I know he wouldn't have approved uh, they're, uh, they don't know anything about Rigdon. Okay, so they're separate groups making allegations, and no one knows that the other one, the, the person they're naming, is connected to the other person who was named. Right? And so, right. It's, yeah, so I'm saying these are independent allegations, and there's no, and that's, just think about what that means in terms of the probability that that would occur, and then you would find a strong connection between the two. Especially when the first one, Spalding, was dead, and we then find that Rigdon had plenty of access to Spalding. Okay, so now we are getting into the information presented on Mormon Leaks as Episode 3. Episode 3 introduces Sidney Rigdon as the connection between Spalding and Joseph Smith. It also introduces Sidney Rigdon as the main contributor for the more religious portions of the Book of Mormon. It shows the connection between Rigdon and Spalding and how Rigdon could have possibly obtained a copy of this second manuscript found and why Rigdon would be interested in such a thing in the first place. Now, there's a lot of information in Episode 3. You'll hear it in the conversation that follows. Uh, On Mormon Leaks, Episode 3 has 132 slides. So... Here you go. So, so let, let's talk about that a little bit. What, what is okay. the connection between Rigdon and Spalding? Yeah, so Rigdon was, um, Rigdon, uh, to earn a living, he was a tanner. And so he'd make book bindings. And these book bindings, he would um, leather book bindings. And he'd take those to the printer uh, in, in Pittsburgh. It was a man named Silas Engels. And um, that was his, and then the printer was linked into a, a publishing company. Uh, and so, you know, they, there was this little operation going there to, to make books, you know, basically. 
And, uh, and Rigdon was a supplier of these leather book bindings. He was also, uh, you know, he'd also received training as a Baptist um, to become a Baptist preacher. So he was very much interested in religion and, and you know, trying to get into the ministry. And then, uh, then you have, um, and then you have this, uh, his occupation to keep him alive is uh, to be a tanner. And he takes stuff to uh, the, uh, the bookshop and he probably loiters and reads things all over the place there. He liked to read. He was a, he was a heavy reader. He loved to read and bragged about it. And, and, and at some point he, he was able to get his hands on that manuscript. Well, so yes, I, so yes, that's the Spalding rig. Now we are, now we're getting to the Spalding Rigdon theory. Yeah. And that this first was alleged in 1834 by, uh, how Eber Howe and Mormonism unveiled and, and uh, this, so this is where the two people that were independently named as likely authors are connected. Is in Mormonism, uh, Mormonism unveiled in 1834, and Howe had uh, was basically the one who wrote the book, or is thought to be the one who wrote the book. And there was an investigator that worked for him, a man named uh, Hurlbut. And uh, Hurlbut, uh, his first name is Doctor, which is a funny thing, but it's not. He's not really a doctor. It's just his first name. <laughs> so anyway, that's very perplexing, actually, when you first hear it. So Doctor Hurlbut, <laughs> Hurlbut uh, was an investigative guy. He went after. He was hired by an anti-Mormon group in Kirtland to go and investigate these uh, about the Smiths to look into the Smiths. He travels around gathering evidence, and they agreed to pay him a certain amount for this evidence. So he goes to Conduit. He collects a lot of testimony. Um, eight of the statements that he collected end up being printed in Mormonism Unveiled. And then he also collects other evidence, uh, you know, from people who knew the Smith family, um, all sorts of things about their money digging and things. And so if you haven't read Mormonism Unveiled, I highly recommend it. It's, it's a really, actually, a really good, really good book. And it's uh, cited quite a lot. So and- ironically, a lot of people cite the, the stuff about the Smith family uh, who and, and give credence to it, the testimonies related to the Smith family, and then they dismiss completely uh, all the affidavits collected that re- relative to the Spalding uh, allegations. Uh, I should they say this is this would be people who are in the firm camp of Smith as the only author, uh, which right. You know, so they they believe the yeah. money digging Hurlbut affidavits, but not the yeah they're uh, they're, they're, they're inconsistent. Right, they're inconsistent in what part of the of the Mormonism unveiled is. Is acceptable, you know. Part of it is not acceptable and should be dismissed, and part is acceptable. Now, there's a really critical moment in this uh, story with Hurlbut. He actually acquired a copy of a manuscript found from the wife, the or the widow of of Spalding. Um, but at some point, uh, he never gives it back as promised, and <laughs> and then and then you know it disappears, and it's there's no evidence for it, but it's believed that he sold it to the church who desperately wanted it to destroy yeah. it. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, basically, uh, Hurlbut, um, I, I, you know, there's different points of view. People have different points of view about Hurlbut. Some people, uh, most of, most people agree that he wasn't a really a good guy. <laughs> um, he's kind of a scoundrel, unfortunately. So basically the widow, the Spalding widow, after her husband dies, she moves far away and she takes with her this, this hairy trunk. And eventually Hurlbut tracks her down. And uh, so he takes everything in the hairy trunk and he'd promised, yes, he had promised to return it to her. He never does return it to her. So he takes off with all this stuff and then he stops on his way back uh, toward the Kirtland area. He stops in 
Palmyra to make an announcement in the newspaper that he succeeded in, the, in his mission, and, and he has firm evidence, and he knows how, who the original source for the Book of Mormon was. And, and, then, uh, and then he goes to Kirtland, and um, he starts making, you know, starts preaching and telling people that he's got this evidence, and according, there are four people who claim to have seen um, manuscript found. He showed them manuscript found side by side with the Book of Mormon, and they said they compared the contents and were sure that it was the same. This was in 18, uh, late 1833. And then in December, he threatens, I, I, the, rec, the account is that he threatened the life of Joseph Smith, and then he, the constable in the area who was um, a Mormon, uh, actually, so Joseph Smith files a complaint against him, and he's arrested, and he's uh, taken in. And then there's kind of a complex series of proceedings uh, that occur after that. But then he's uh, tried, eventually he's tried, and uh, and it's uh, quite a circus scene when he's tried and um, released. And then he goes off and um, he buys a far- marries, buys a farm, and and then the rumor is that he that he uh, received four or five hundred dollars from uh, the Mormon leadership to get surrender a manuscript found because the manuscript that he ultimately delivers to Howe is the Oberlin manuscript. <laughs> he gives Howe um, the one, you know, the, 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 the person who writes Mormonism unveiled, he gives him the Oberlin manuscript. He doesn't give him manuscript found and, and Howe reads through it and says, Oh, this is useless. This is nothing. This is not manuscript found. And so then Howe actually has doubts about Hurlbut. So he goes oh, back to Conduit and he checks with the witnesses. Did you really say this? <laughs> Did you really say this? And they say, yeah, this is what we said. And then he, sh- and he shows them the Oberlin manuscript and they go, no, that's not the manuscript we we're talking about. That's not what we we're talking about. We didn't swear to that about that manuscript, but that is a Spalding manuscript. That's not the one we swore to. Uh, I, that takes a lot of balls to go back to Joseph's backyard <laughs> with that manuscript. Hurlbut had that. Yeah, he was. <laughs> yeah, he, he was. He was. Um, yeah, he was kind of like that. So you know what happened to the manuscript? Now it's it is a mystery what happened to the manuscript. And uh, there are some versions of this that people tell who that are more benign with Hurlbut. I'm not so nice to him. <laughs> I kind of. I really kind of think he. Uh, he sold out. I think he. I think he sold out. That's what I think about him. I think the biggest question that I have between in the difference between these two, uh, you know, because when I when I first heard of Solomon Spalding, you know, I heard the nickname "Old" and it came to pass, right? Yes. And, yeah, yeah. and so I, I like you. You've you've addressed this before, but I expected to see that in the first manuscript, and I didn't oh, at all. Oh, you know, yeah, and so yeah. and so. Why Why would there be such a stark change in his writing style? Oh, great question. Great question. So, I, you know, he, what he did, according to the witnesses, he, his, when he wrote the next version, his next book, his, his Magnus Opum, he was deliberately imitating the style of the Bible. Okay. He wanted to create something that sounded like the Bible, you know, so early modern English. Uh, and we're talking about the King James Bible. So that was his goal. So if if we did have that document, and mm-hmm. you were able to run, uh, you know, the, the word comparisons between manuscript story and manuscript found, you would just um, rule out the things that were different and focus on the word word patterns that were the same, and and you expect that you'd still see about you know the eighty nine percent 
similarity between the two documents or could, yeah. could, could the conscious efforts of a writer change oh, that? That's another good, that's another really good question. Actually, the words we focused on are uh, frequently used words, words like to and of the, uh-huh. you don't, it's very hard to alter your usage of those words. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible because it, in authorship attribution work, it is known that you can obfuscate. You can, if you, if you make a conscious effort to, um, to obfuscate and to hide your own, uh, you know, so you're looking at a document and you, you, you deliberately, and this is, this would occur in the modern age, but I don't, but in the 19th century, people didn't think about computers being able to analyze their text. Sure. Right. They weren't <laughs> but, vigilant, you know, but it's now known people now know that it is possible for someone to, to, ob- to hide their signal. Uh, if they are very, very careful in how they do it. But you'd have to be very careful and, and deliberate, and you'd have to be anticipating that someone would have the ability to do that, which uh, it really takes computers to do. Okay. Yeah, like change, trying to change your handwriting can be kind of similar. Yes, right. Okay, so, we, so we've, we've established that um, there was this second document that doesn't exist anymore, but uh, that Sidney Rigdon had obtained a copy of that at some point. It but, looks but like, it, but, but yeah. it was a different copy than the one, obviously, that Hurlbut had. Well, Hurlbut um, ended up with a copy that the widow had in her trunk. Okay. The version that was in there um, was probably his, uh, you know, some original version of manuscript found. Um, probably, if I had to guess, unedited. But we know that he took it to this um, to this publishing shop for publication. We know that it was prepared for publication, so there was an edited version created there, and uh, that's not the one that was in the, 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 that his widow had. Yeah, that his widow had. Right. Right. So, so the 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 thought is that at some point when when that publishing house went bankrupt and they sold their their manuscripts, that it got. Sold or somehow Sidney Rigdon got a hold of it at that yeah, point. Yeah, there's at least a couple of possibilities there. According to some accounts, he knew Solomon Spaulding. Mm. He knew Solomon Spaulding and wanted to uh, and thought that this was great stuff. And Spaulding was suspicious of Rigdon, according to some accounts. Mm. And so that's one possibility that as a teenager he was there and and had access. And, and according to one account, he took it home. It disappeared for a while, and they didn't know where it went. And then it reappeared, and and he was blamed for its, its disappearance. That's one account. So that's one possibility that time period. But later, in 1823, Rigdon's a preacher now in Pittsburgh. Um, and at that time, the, the, the publishing shop has changed hands, and you know they went bankrupt. And so then the question is, uh, what happened to all the manuscripts they had there? We know the, the widow couldn't get them because she was like 500 miles away at when they went bankrupt in 1823. So if there was anything edited, you know, from Spalding that it was hanging around the shop, it's hanging around, it's possible Rigdon could have picked that up then. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, you know, on, on the website, um, Mormon Leaks, you, you use some pie charts that are pretty visually impactful, um, you know, that, that show that this small piece that was probably Joseph's contribution, a smaller piece that was probably Oliver's contribution, and a, a you know, a, a big piece that was Spalding, and then, you know, not quite as big um, Rigdon. Um, so h- how do those pieces come together, that, that, that the, the manuscript found document was actually the foundation for a lot of the Book of Mormon, and then uh, yeah. Sidney Rigdon wrote some things in, a, in addition surrounding that, and, yeah. and Joseph did, and 
Yeah, I, I guess part- Parley P. Pratt was involved in that as well. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so it's sort of like a layered thing. Yeah. So, so the theory is that um, essentially Rigdon, um, he has the document, and according to one witness, um, Reverend Winter is his name, who visited Rigdon in 1823, about that time period, he had it and, and he even showed it to Winter and talked about it freely with Winter. So at that time, if it's true that he had it in 1823, as Winter reportedly did say, um, then um, he wasn't trying to do anything with it. He was just ha- he was just happy to have it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so then that would mean that the idea to do something with it came later. And so what happens is that he go- his tannery goes out of business or he sells out of it. I'm trying to remember 1825. I want to say 1825, and then he uh, goes off into the wilderness. Now with his family to Bainbridge, Ohio. And and uh, some background on this is that he was a follower of Alexander Campbell. Campbell really likes Rigdon initially, and Rigdon likes Campbell a lot. Okay, so they start off on really friendly terms, and eventually Rigdon uh, is excommunicated by uh, other members of his congregation, um, as, you know, who don't like him. And, uh, and there's a group that rises up against him, and he's basically thrown out. And then he goes off into this, into the, he sells his tannery and he goes off into the wilderness to Bainbridge, Ohio. And uh, so up to this point in time, he's, uh, you know, up until 1823, 1824, he was a Rigdonite. But increasingly, he's having disagreements with, with or excuse me, he was a Campbellite. Um, but he's increasingly having uh, disagreements with Campbell over various points of doctrine. And, it, you know, starting to really get edgy between the two men. And, and, and one of the important ones is the the value of the Old Testament, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So Campbell, spirit. <laughs> yeah, right. And there's a there's a bunch of things actually that you can name that he's really. Um, that, and I should say first of all that a lot of Campbellite doctrines show up in the Book of Mormon, like the laying on of hands for the gift, the laying on of hands. There's all sorts of. You know, the terminology that we have in the Book of Mormon, much of the terminology is very Campbellite. And um, I, I've get written an essay on this. You can look it up and you'll see there's just thing after thing that Campbell, um, that Campbell taught and um, that Rigdon adopted. But there were some points where they really disagreed. And, um, and uh, you know, Rigdon believed that there would be miracles, there would be, that, that there should be... Um, uh, you know, revelation. Rigdon had a whole different view of of some aspects of things. Then Campbell announces he's going to create a new Bible, <laughs> so he's going to make a new Bible, and the new Bible is not going to have the Old Testament, which Rigdon is. Rigdon's all about the old prophets. He loves the prophets of the Especially Old Testament. Isaiah. <laughs> yeah, he just he he loves them. I mean, and so to think of a Bible with no Old Testament. You know, just he's just very upset about it. So eventually, he takes off with his family, and goes off into the uh, into the wilderness in this Bainbridge cabin, and uh, he's there in 1826 and 27. And it's and and there he um, reportedly, according to people who who, who knew him there, uh, he was working busy working on something. And there was a maid, Densie Thompson is her name, and she she lived there as a live-in help. Um, and with the kids, it was a pretty big family already by that time, and she's live in. And later, in her old age, she said that that's where the Book of Mormon was composed. And so the basic theory is that Rigdon inserted his uh, theological beliefs into the Spalding base text, which 
he had, and which was written essentially in the style of the King James Bible already. So he just inserts his own theology, and some of it's some of it is Campbellite theology, but he's also inserting his the points where he disagrees with Campbell. So how does the how does the timeline fit here with um, you know what Joseph Smith is doing and the claim yeah. that he's making of golden plates? You know, have have he and Rigdon met at this point and formed a partnership, or what's what's going on here? Oh, there's a, there's a real question when they when they met is a is a question. So there's this reporter named um, Bennett Gordon Bennett. He's writing about um, a preacher, a preacher named Rangdon, or he calls him Rangdon. He doesn't call yeah. him Rigdon. He calls him Rangdon, the wrong name. And he says that they, the gold diggers, were out hunting and they needed help, and they'd heard about the powers of this guy named Rangdon, and someone was sent to get him, and he came. So that's one way in which they are, they could have been, they could have met us through the gold digging activities, and someone. Uh, commenting on Rigdon. Uh, probably more likely is there's 1825 time when there was um, a lot of um, preachers came to town. And uh, it, and so it could be that, you know, when they're having those, uh, what do they call that, um, meth- like revivals, okay, revival period in, um, in the New York area. And during that revival period, it's another period where Rigdon could have been there and there could have been a meeting between the men. So there's a couple of times where it could involve the treasure hunting, or it could involve uh, revivals. One of those two, um, either one is is a possibility. But you, there's no, we can't we can't say that's when it, we can't say with certainty that this is when they met. We just can't. And what could Rigdon have possibly seen in, you know, Joseph Smith at this point? Who I mean, especially if you're talking about 1825, he was just a treasure seeker. Yeah. There wasn't really that that much religious about him he didn't have the aura of a prophet around him so why why would rigdon pick joseph smith yeah for one thing i think joseph smith had a reputation i mean he he could go out and he could he could make miracles happen you know i mean he could he could make things seem supernatural and rigdon wanted that he wanted this work to come to light through seemingly miraculous means i mean he he was advised he had this mentor uh, lumen walters who reportedly uh, advised him to find a book. Lumen Walters had a copy of Cicero's Orations, and he would read it to people and tell them that it was the story of the ancient Americans, and, and they and it was really, you know, it's Cicero's Orations is in Latin, and so he had this manuscript, and he would tell people this, and it was part of his con, and he told Joseph Smith he should get his own book. So I, the, the, the idea is that Joseph Smith was, in the, was hunting, looking, re- looking for a book. He wanted a book. I think Rigdon had a book, and he wanted a book. You know, if, if Rigdon's working on a book, and he's kind of picked Joseph as being the the conduit through which he's going to publish it to the the world, then then you get into the question of how it's how it's written and how they're collaborating over this this distance and yes. getting portions of text back and forth. And absolutely, yeah. yeah. So in, in Mormon links, we get into the more details on that with uh, showing uh, the locations of the individuals involved in Ohio, um, New York, and then later in Pennsylvania. So, um, and you can sort of see how we think it probably transpired. So um, you do have, there is evidence that in 1826, Joseph Smith was tried in a court in Bainbridge, New York. <laughs> There's two Bainbridges. So in Bainbridge, New York, you've got uh, Joseph Smith being tried and found guilty. What he was being charged with had to do with his all his money digging and you know, the way in which he would uh, deceive people. 
I guess you would say, uh, con people out of uh, money for digging on their property and finding stuff, finding stuff. Uh, so he was being charged there and he was found guilty and then he was given leg bail. And according to these accounts, he, he went West and according to one account, he went up West to, um, to basically back where his parents were up in Palmyra. And then he, as according to the one account, he goes all the way from there on down into Ohio. And in Ohio, there's, there are people who say that Joseph Smith met Sidney Rigdon in Ohio, that they were seen together there. And that the two men um, hung around together and then took off. And according to one account, they went off to Pennsylvania together. So that would have been in the spring of 1826. So after the, Bain- the trial in Bainbridge, New York, then you have this account that says that they were in, that Smith went to Bainbridge, Ohio, and um, met with uh, Rigdon there. And there's some uh, gaps, aren't there? Some gaps in Sidney Rigdon's schedule that leave that possibility open. Yes, right. And so, actually, there's that's one thing that Fawn Brody missed when she was critical of the Spalding Rigdon um, connections is that there are gaps that are sort of conspicuous and important gaps in Rigdon's schedule. Uh, and um, for that particular time period, I don't remember exactly how long it was or anything, but it's, it's not, let's put it this way. It's not, there's no evidence that contradicts the idea that Rigdon and Smith were together at that time. So that's presumably the first time they would have met then in 1826, or actually it would have been, I don't know if it would have been the first time, it would have probably been the second time because uh, I mentioned already the earlier accounts, uh, the 1825 kind of um, revival type meetings or the treasure hunting uh, accounts uh, of Gordon Bennett, the reporting of Gordon Bennett that suggests that they were together through the treasure hunting activities. Okay, now we are about to get into the information that you find in episode four of Mormon Leaks that's called the Gold Bible Company. Now, this introduces the conspiracy between Sidney Rigdon, Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery, and Parley P. Pratt with the Spalding Manuscript the manuscript found, as the base text for the Book of Mormon. It suggests that Rigdon and Smith met sometime around 1825 or 1826 and planned this whole thing out years prior to their official December 1830 claim of their first meeting. And it also details the specific role that each of these men played in the compilation and the publication of the Book of Mormon, especially going into a lot of detail on Joseph Smith, his background as a money digger, the occult influences in the Smith family. That's episode four, and it consists of 197 slides. So we're going to talk a little bit about the Gold Bible Company here. So you have this, uh, you have this thing you've dubbed the, the Mormon Bible Company. Yeah, the gold Bible. Golden Bible. The Golden yeah. Bible Company. I, I'm not the one who came up with that name. I mean, that was that's how they called it. I, I thought of it as the Gold Bible Company. Uh, well, I'd kind of like to, to talk about that because it's um, the, your theory um, requires a conspiracy of four men. So maybe you could talk about how uh, Parley Pratt and Oliver Cowdery uh, round out this quartet of con men. Yeah, Oliver Cowdery uh, was involved in pamphlet selling and, and books and peddler. He also got involved in printing, according to some accounts. He also was involved in, uh, you know, uh, basically a peddler, I guess would be the best way to put it, is a peddler of books and pamphlets. And he traveled that route uh, between uh, New York and Ohio a lot. And then Parley Pratt was another man who did that. He was thought to be a tinsmith. 
and who made that same. He was also a peddler. And so both men are peddlers who made the route from Ohio to um, uh, New York. Now, uh, Pratt, uh, according to his account, he he lived, um, I forget where exactly, but it was not too close to Rigdon. It was pretty far from Rigdon in Ohio. But um, his brother lived cl- um, very fairly close to Rigdon. And um, Pratt uh, became a follower of Rigdon. Um, and was a, so a Rigdonite, right? He was a Rigdonite. And then uh, he was very, according to his own autobiography, which is an autobiography you have to take worth a grain of salt, by the way. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I just, I almost, I almost have to, I almost feel like yelling liar at every page when I read his autobiography. But then, um, and then Oliver Cowdery, uh, he's more on the other, he's up in New York primarily. That's where he is at. And um, he's, He's got a lot of family there in the New York area. He's uh, sort of a distant cousin to the Smith family. And he's, uh, so his interactions are more with Joseph, and you would say that uh, Parley Pratt's are more with uh, Rigdon. But, but, the four, but the four of them together um, created the, the Book of Mormon. So they're the ones that are the gold Bible company, basically. Right. It's those four individuals. Right. And, and then with the, with the Solomon Spaulding manuscripted. Right. And, and, and there's a financier here. And the financier is Martin Harris. Yeah. And, and that's so really you asked the question earlier, Glenn, about, you know, why would he want to pair with why would Rigdon want to pair with Smith? Well, uh, one possible reason would be that he needed he knew that if you don't have money, you don't print a book. You do not print a book. He knew that because he saw that happen to Spalding. He'd had interactions with that print shop. He knew that you had to have money to get a print, get it printed. And so there's, uh, he had an incentive to find someone who could raise money as well. And uh, Joseph Smith uh, looked like a guy who could make it look supernatural. He could potentially raise money from the farmers. And so um, Smith targeted Harris as his dupe because he was wealthy and very incredibly incredibly credulous yeah and actually um one of my questions before i read your mormon leaks was uh why if oliver cowdery was already in the area and part of this conspiracy why would he have martin harris be his scribe on the first 116 pages and the answer is because he needed to convince martin to to pay for the printing the the publishing of the book of mormon yes that's and then right. once that once all that fell apart, then that's when you know Oliver came in. If the theory's true, you know yes, all of Oliver right. came in. Okay, this next part gets a little tricky, so bear with me. We're going to get into the information that's covered in episode five, and this explores in more depth the complexity of the Book of Mormon record, why there are multiple internal editors and stories within stories. The episode is titled, Necessity is the Mother of Invention is Crossed Out and Revelation is Put in in Its Place. So it's suggesting that there are four distinct phases or plans for writing the Book of Mormon that were all caused by the first 116 pages being lost or stolen by Lucy Harris, the skeptical wife of Martin Harris, who acted as scribe for those first 116 pages and had agreed to finance the publication of the Book of Mormon. Okay, so let me uh, let me just summarize really quickly these four plans. So you've got plan A. The original vision was that Smith would simply replace Spaulding. So Rigdon would write his doctrinal religious portion and Smith would just rewrite via dictation 
the Spalding text. Now, this would become the Book of Mormon, but then the first 116 pages were lost. And those 116 pages had the Jaredite story, it had the migration from the Old World to the New World. So they had to redo that. And the original source documents from Spalding that Smith had been dictating had been destroyed because they destroyed it to cover their tracks. So they had to make another plan what they were going to do to start the Book of Mormon. So plan B was that they would just continue the way that they had been doing in plan A from the point where they left off. So that's basically from the book of Mosiah to chapter 6 of Mormon towards the end. But they also, at this point, needed to invent a new internal character or enhance the role of Moroni, the son of Mormon, so that he could act as narrator for the Jaredite portion of the story that had been lost in the first 116 pages. So they could still include that story, but put it towards the end of the book rather than the beginning of the book and have Moroni be the narrator for that. That's plan B. Now, plan C, they still had a problem where at the beginning of the book, it just starts off in Mosiah and they couldn't have that. So they created another internal narrator, Nephi, and they told the story from his perspective. Now, this was all new material, not originally written by Spaulding and would be written by Rigdon and then delivered to Joseph and Oliver by Parley Pratt. And then plan D addressed this one last problem where you've got Nephi as the introductory character and narrator, but obviously... His lifespan doesn't last up until the book of Mosiah, where plan A starts. So they had to bridge that gap. And this is where they created the storytelling device of the small plates of Nephi and all of these prophets from Nephi to Mosiah that add little bits and pieces to that record up until Mosiah starts again and the Spalding record uh starts to pick up. So this is the claim, plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. That explains the complexity of the Book of Mormon, the reason there are so many internal narrators, so many authors, editors, the stories upon stories. And when they do the word print analysis, it lines up very nicely with what they would expect, according to this theory, uh, where Smith is the author, where Rigdon is the author, where Spaulding's the author, etc. I hope you were writing all that down, because... Please don't make me repeat all this. So then during that, that first 116 pages, yeah. R- Rigdon already has the bulk of the Book of Mormon written because you, you've got that section about the plan A, plan B, plan C, right, plan D. Right, you know? right. so, so, so Joseph's kind of going through a ruse of composing the first 116 pages. But what is, what is he actually doing? Does he have, well, th- does he have we, stuff from Rigdon? We, what we know, he, what we know is that um, what we know is that uh, when he picked up, okay, this is he was he was dictating, right? We know he was dictating, and how we know he was dictating is because the the, the part of the Book of Mormon that comes after the lost pages includes a lot of Appalachian English. Okay, so words like I was a I was a traveling, I was a running, I was journeying, you know. Uh, that's all been cleaned up (laughs) we 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 was doing that we was doing this uh so so it looks like a dictation in appalachian english and and uh sydney rigdon too was probably a speaker of appalachian english and i we give some evidence of that in episode six of of this of this dialect that both men likely used and and i give a lot of reasons And, and well so anytime anytime they were dictating then and they were trying to convince someone that they were had magic powers. 
they probably would have lapsed into their own their own dialect, and then it would have been recorded. Now, what we believe, what I believe is true, is that they understood from uh, Rigdon would have understood from the available books at, to him at that time uh, that the ancient the Bible was likely written by scribes in in this way. In other words, there was a guy named Thomas Horn who had written this book, um, this scholarly work on uh, the origins that described the origins of the Holy Scriptures of the Bible, and and this book was very likely available to Rigdon, and and it was later it shows up in there in uh, Joseph Smith's uh, library, in fact. But so Thomas Horn's book um, was likely available to Rigdon, and this book includes it's sort of it's almost like an instruction manual on how to make scripture. And it says that, and because Horn was puzzling, how did the how did these ancient prophets, or how did these ancient writers of the of the Gospels, and of the of the um, uh, Bible, how did they know what to write when they weren't eyewitnesses in many cases? You know, they they were not eyewitnesses; and they were writing about it. How did they know? And uh, so Horn has some speculation in his book about how they knew. And that he said his thinking was, you know, they would study, they they would write stuff down and think about it. They would think about things and memorize things, and then they would start writing. And God would let them, God would not let them err, and, and would allow them to express themselves in the manner that they were accustomed to. And and so it's it's quite possible that in dictating, they felt that they were just basically channeling God, and that they were saying what they were saying was somehow, especially in Rigdon when he was in in, in Bainbridge, Ohio, in 1826. Uh, that it was apparently very convincing to Dempsey Thompson when Rigdon was when 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 whoever when when they were doing these seance, what seemed like almost like seance sessions from her descriptions, and they were um, they she says that they believed that they were creating a, a new Bible um, that you know that they were doing it the same way that the ancient. Um, um, Bible was the the I should say the they were doing the same method using the same method as the people who created the Bible. So you're That's talking about thought. you're talking about Rigdon's me- methodology as right. he was writing. Okay, right. I'm saying that. So in 1826, let's say that, and there were and she's uh, Dempsey Thompson said there were several people there. It wasn't from in adjacent places, not just Rigdon that was in the home working on this. Yeah. Okay. So and so it involved a dictation process there. And I think it's quite possible that Rigdon uh, would. It's quite possible that Rigdon was himself memorizing and then dictating lines, uh, you know, and uh, he would have done so in Appalachian English. So that would have been one place where you would get, uh, if you have scribes recording things and other people dictating, you would have basically this kind of uh, Appalachian English pattern showing up in version 1.0 of the of the Book of Mormon, which is going to come out in. Uh, you know, basically created uh, 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 what comes to them in 1827, in which Martin Harris then does the first 116 pages of that with Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith was probably using the same method as Rigdon. But was he was he was Joseph Smith telling a story that Rigdon had provided to him, or was Joseph Smith coming up with stuff on his own yeah. in concert with you know like a master plan? Yeah, I think he. I think my best guess is that he was he was involved in the eighteen twenty six meetings in Bainbridge, so he would have been part of that group. So they, they storyboarded their plan A, right? And and said, right. okay, Joseph, you you take 
Here it you is. You know, whatever. You, you take right. Mosiah, you take whatever yeah. it was at the time. Yeah. And those are the things that he was dictating to Martin Harris. Right. right. Okay. And apparently, in some accounts, he was Harris was behind a, behind a, uh, a curtain, you know? So he could have just had this, this document that he had helped create and and he and Rigdon from a Spalding base text had already helped create he and Cowdery and Rigdon probably, and and they and then he's just dictating it, mm-hmm. and uh, Harris is recording it, and um, you know so all he has to do is read it actually, and then Harris just records it because there's there's a curtain separating them, and he's already told Harris not to look under this certain cloth and because he'll he'll be destroyed you know penalty of death yeah and yeah penalty of death and so Harris is. Harris is convinced that Smith has these magic powers, and so he's not going to look under the cloth. So Plan A produces the first 116 pages, which are then lost because of uh, Lucy Harris, smart, 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 smart. (laughs) Uh, And then, so that was probably in the Appalachian English, uh, but it's lost. It's gone forever. Uh, Now you got Joseph uh, as a deer in the headlights. Right, right. um, Yeah, what to do now? Yeah, what to do now? He, he and he he then comes up with a story that uh, the plates have been taken away by the angel, and uh, and he's lost the ability to translate, and he's being punished for a season. Um, and then you have uh, the Book of Commandments, uh, section four, which talks about how he lost this this power. Well, and he BC did BC two is where BC two. Yeah, that was BC two and BC nine yeah. uh, involved. Yeah both ends of, you know, where he loses yeah. it and then gets it back. And you did a word print analysis on BC2, yeah. and it's in Sidney right. Rigdon's right. writing style. Right, exactly. Uh, so, that, that was a connection that really, I, I didn't read that till today, and I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, um, so Rigdon, actually, that scripture is really interesting, Book of Commandments, Chapter 2. I, you know, pe- I hope people will read that, because that, you know, when you think of Rigdon as the author of that, the, the author is writing about him he's talking he's condemning uh, joseph smith and martin harris and then um and then he's also um it's clear that he's referring to how they neglected the counsel of their director you know and and so rigdon's speaking in the voice of god because <laughs> we're attributing this chapter to rigdon and uh and he's speaking in the voice of god and he's and he's using the he's speaking about himself in the third person, and this is a pattern of Sidney Rigdon over and over again, which, which I think is actually probably some, something to do with a pathology, a brain pathology, which we could go into that later, I guess, if you're interested. But I think he is. Um, you, you could sort of think of Rigdon as a sort of split brain. I sort of he thinks he's hearing God, and he can speak for God, and God can talk about Sidney. Through him. So in, in BC2, when, you know, Joseph is chastened and, you know, yeah. for, for putting, uh, you know, uh, trampling under his feet, you know, whatever the words of the director. The director. The, right. the, the director is God, the one who's direct, been directing him. But it's actually Sidney Rigdon speaking, t- taking on that, that persona. that persona. I mean, you could say it this way. It's really maybe not God. It's right, really sure. God talking through Sydney saying, you've, you've not listened to the counsel of your director. Yeah. And your director is Rigdon. Yeah. And, right. and yet it's Rigdon saying this. So, and so and, uh, then, yeah, I'm gonna say, then BC nine is, is basically uh, after a season, he's given the power back. And that also is in Rigdon's um, writing style. 
Uh, now we have cowdery country. Oh no, that's cowdery. I'm sorry. Yeah. You're right. that's, yeah. yeah. So, so we have some evidence that we present there about sort of how they form this sort of triangle where uh, Rigdon is off in. This is an episode six at Mormon Leaks. Rigdon is in in Ohio. And uh, there's a season there. It's the winter, right? They basically lose the 116 pages in, well, Harris takes them on June 15th, 1828. And he takes them to Lucy, and then they are lost soon after that. And then, uh, so early July or late June, uh, they're, they're gone. And Smith gets word. And so he goes up to uh, his, his, the home, his home. And we know Cadre's around that area then at that time. So the logical thing, now this is an inference, the logical thing is that Cadre is um, informed and that he then goes off to see Rigdon to inform Rigdon and that the two men, Rigdon and Cadre, um, then uh, return. And so the Rig- Rigdon's records are consistent with this uh, scenario where Rigdon comes back, but this is an inference. So Rigdon comes back. We have BC2 given uh, to Smith. And then Cadre and they develop a plan for what to do, what to do about the lost pages. And now they're going to need some time. They're going to need to stall. They need to get material put together. Rigdon needs to uh, get, you know, rework materials and find ways to replace what was lost. They don't want to. They can't replicate exactly what was done. Uh, and they're and they 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 have to come up with a reason why they can't. And uh, so Cowdery is, uh, is basically a critical person who's brought in to, to play a key role here in replacement of the lost pages. Right. And then uh, it, when it's time to, to start up again, he doesn't start uh, from the beginning. He just starts from where the 116 left off, which is exactly. in Exactly. So he starts with the beginning of near the beginning of the book, in the beginning of the book of Messiah. And, he, and they slowly, he's very slowly <laughs> dictating. Uh, like before with Harris, he was doing almost two pages a day um, with 116 pages. But now he's like half a page per day. And he's got Emma and Reuben, and he's in um, he's down in uh, um, Pennsylvania, Harmony. So he's very slowly going along uh, all winter um, and making very slow progress. And then and then in comes Cowdery in April of 1829. And when Cowdery shows up, the rate of dictation goes up by a factor of 15. In fact, it's six pages a day, right? Yeah, right, right. Uh, over that, I think six and a half. But yeah, you're right. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a much faster rate. It jumps way up because now Joseph Smith doesn't need to worry about um, dic- conning anyone. <laughs> it's no longer a con. Now he can he can dictate and and he can pull the stuff out openly in front of Cadre and just start going. And he can start reading, and Cadre can start recording because they need to get everything into Cadre's handwriting. Right. You know, they need to get it into the scribe handwriting. They can't have it in the handwriting of, you know, it could have been Spalding with Rigdon insertions or, you know, other other kind of handwriting. They have to get it into Rigdon's or uh, Cowdery's handwriting. And so then this this segment is, is still plan A in the Appalachian English, and it goes all the way until uh, 3 Nephi 11, right, when Jesus comes? Is yeah. that the plan A segment? Actually, yeah, so, so there in that part... Um, what we're seeing there is an insertion that seems to have occurred right at, right in that summer. Um, so uh, it's it's an insertion where all up to most of the text you just described from Mosiah um, on up to uh, Third Nephi 
most of it, with some some exceptions, um, is attributed to Spalding. A lot of it is attributed to Spalding. But then there's this gap right around Third Nephi, right where Jesus Christ appears, and that all the attributions. Well, there's the Bible part, of course, that's basically copied from 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 Matthew, um, from the Sermon on the Mount. But um, but then after that part. Uh, you've got basically Rigdon showing up. So it seems like Rigdon in 3 Nephi introduces Jesus Christ to America, and then, it, and then you have it go back to the other style, and it continues on until, uh, until about Mormon chapter 7. And then the next thing that happens is now what we envision is that the, uh, Rigdon goes back to um, Ohio, and uh, he's got to prepare material during the winter. Of 1828, 1829, and uh, he's got Pratt to help him. And they, as to do this, they first of all um, they look around what material do they have that they can add. And there is this account of a Canaanites of, 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 and, and Jaredites. That's another Spalding account that they have access to. Another Spalding account. So they've got the Spalding account of the Jaredites and Canaanites. And what to do with this? And uh, they make a decision that they need to bulk up the Book of Mormon, but they can't put this at the beginning of the Book of Mormon because if the lost pages are found and compared with this, they would be exposed as, as frauds. And so they say they decide, well, we'll just put it to the back end of the book, and it will buy us time, and it adds bulk to the book. So they take, but they don't want to put they don't want to put all of it in. So they split it and they just have the Jaredite account. They take the Jaredite account, which we now call the book of ether and they stick it in there at the end of, um, what we were talking about is plan a. So, you know, you have the book of ether introduced and we have a new character becoming a, an editor and that's Moroni before it was just Mormon and was the only editor. And that's why we call it the book of Mormon. Right. But now we have another editor introduced, who's going to edit this larger Jaredite account, and that's, um, uh, that's Moroni. And so Moroni comes in, and he talks about at the very first part of Moroni, or uh, excuse me, of the Book of Ether, Moroni is the speaker, and Moroni is talking about his um, making it, uh, and how he's abridging these much larger record of the Jaredites, and that he won't tell, he won't tell the reader anything about the time period before the Jaredites, that, that, but that's available. This earlier time period is available. Um, and, yeah, actually, it's if you want to look at that scripture, it's quite amusing to read it. But uh, So he's just going to say, I'm not going to talk about all this other stuff that came before this time, but here, here's what I'm going to tell you about, the part about the Jaredites. And so he tells the story of the Jaredites and, and, and hints at the Book of Moses. He hints at the Book of Moses right there at the beginning of the Book of Ether. The Book of Moses is the prequel, the prequel to the Book of Ether. So he's so what that means is that this gives Rigdon a nice thing because he can hang on to this revelation for later use, um, this Spalding document for later use. And so they insert the Book of Ether. It's helping buy time. And then um, now they get to a point eventually where they, they need to replace that front end, what to do with the front end. And Cowdery's been thinking about this and working on it but they're not having a lot of success. And so uh, there's a couple of, they introduce a new editor to the book, uh, just like they did at the back end. The third editor is Nephi. And so they think, oh, we've solved the problem with, we'll make Nephi into an editor where he's editing the account of his father, Lehi. Uh, We'll we'll do that. We'll make him into into the editor. I mean, so basically they found that there's this strategy that Spalding used of 
using an, a, a character in the book as an editor of, of some, some larger manuscript, right? Spaulding apparently did that with Mormon as his internal editor. And now you've had Moroni as an internal editor, and now you add Nephi as an internal editor. Now then they get into a problem with Nephi because he dies before the beginning of the book of Mosiah, right? Oh, yeah. So, so then they have to come up with this, this it's, it's ad hoc, you know? This, so what they have to do is they have to invent something to, for the gap, the gap between Nephi's death and the beginning of the book of Mosiah. And so, they, so the final solution is the small plates of Nephi, and the small plates of Nephi are handed down from Nephi to, you know, from prophet to prophet, Nephi prophet to prophet, until you get to precisely the beginning of the book of Mosiah. And then, and then of course, we, we're done with that. Yeah, and, and there's a strange, uh, the strange, I can't remember if it's the book of Omni, but it's like, and I had the plates and I didn't do much and then I gave it to the <laughs> guy. And then I had the plates and not much happened. I gave it to the next guy. It's like, right. fast forward. Right, and, and so are, are are you suggesting yeah. then, Craig, that the reason that all all that is there is to to just prove some internal evidence, if you'll call it that, that these small plates of Nephi actually existed, you know, throughout the the record? Yeah, they had to make it clear. They had to fill the gap in time. Yeah, uh, and they and basically Nephi dies. <laughs> And so, and, and so he's, he's not going to die right when the book of Mosiah begins. And so their first solution is to have Nephi be an editor of his father's record, which yeah. works up through his life. That's okay. Yeah. But as minute he dies, now you've got to do something else. So the final plan, what we call plan D in, in Mormon leaks, plan D is, okay, got to hand it on down and make, and basically you're going to have two sets of plates uh, that Nephi's abridging. Um, and he's basically uh, got a theological version that he's going to hand on down, um, you know, from Nephi prophet to prophet until you get to, and this is the small plates of Nephi, right? And, the, and they're running out of space. Yeah, they're running out of space, right? Yeah. So I, I don't want to hear Randy's answer on this because I already know your answer, Randy. I'm going to ask you, Craig, because we've Randy and I have talked about this. So if if you have Oliver Cowdery, I'm sure you, this has come up before, Craig. Oliver Cowdery is in on the conspiracy. Sidney Rigdon's in on the conspiracy. Uh, they both Parley Pratt, but, oh, but, but, but he never, he never, Cowdery, Cowdery gets excommunicated in 1838, you know, Rigdon is kind of out of favor, um, you know, during the Nauvoo period and, and has that, that incident with his daughter, Nancy Rigdon, you know, which was a pretty public, uh, incident repudiating the, uh, the, the polygamy, you know, approach that Joseph took. So there, there were times when both of these guys were really upset with Joseph, why yeah. wouldn't they have blown the whistle, e- even if it was to try and make themselves look a little bit better, you know, or say, hey, you guys, Joseph isn't what you think he is? Yeah, well, I think that a, a good answer to that is that these men were incredibly desperate, first of all, in, in, in establishing um, this collaboration. They were financially destitute, and they needed to get together to do something about that. And they were very ambitious men. And so they ended up creating an institution um, that was that they profited from. And then and then for them to turn against then the the founder uh, or to turn against Smith, you could say, to turn against him uh, and and expose everything that had happened. Well, they would be themselves um, hugely discredited. Their their reputations would be ruined. 
they wouldn't have any chance. And so I think it rests with this huge ambition of each of these men. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, Rigdon, a very ambitious man, and he goes on to lead congregations later. You think he would have been able to lead congregations later if he'd if he'd um, turned on Smith? Absolutely uh, not. And and the same. And if you look at Cowdery, he wanted to have he was he went on to have a legal. Uh, career uh, and he was hoping to have he had a political aspirations as did Rigdon and and so these are not people who could stand to have uh, skeletons in the closet uh, disclosed right right that makes a lot of sense it's likely that you know for example when when Joseph Smith was uh, doing his treasure digging he actually um, he actually had a contract signed by the gold diggers, they all signed a contract. They agreed on the shares, how the shares would be allocated. Um, you know, they made, they drew up documents and they all signed it and were signatures. And, and basically they, they followed the contract. And so, uh, and he, and uh, so I, I can imagine a scenario where that, that occurred or something similar to that, where they all made a covenant or contracts, deep, serious covenants about this, because they all knew that there were serious consequences of, that would come that could come from this. I mean, that seems plausible to me. Now, the other thing I want to back up on is I don't think I don't think necessarily uh, that that this happened quite the way you just described. Okay. In other words, I think that there's it's quite probable and po- or quite possible that Cowdery, for example, and Smith even, but certainly Cowdery could have been duped and and Rigdon or Pratt too maybe by Rigdon <laughs> in mm. Bainbridge, Ohio. Right. I mean, initially, they. I think he was such a. Um, you know, you've seen crazy people out there. Um, you know, with uh, religious crazy people uh, talking uh, in tongues or right or, or describing. You know, calling for the world to repent. This is this is the kind of guy Rigdon was. You know, he had. I, I was going to. I want to go back to the, his childhood. He, he was seven or so when he was riding with his father, and he fell off the horse. And his foot got caught in the stirrups, and he got dragged. And he had his head banging against the ground. And his brother, uh, his older brother, who was later a physician, uh, said that his that he, he changed, that it affected him, and that he became um, a, a good candidate for involvement with uh, religion, a new religion. And um, so, you know, if you read Rigdon, and I've read a lot of Rigdon, he does this first-person, third-person switching a lot, okay, you you get this sense of a guy who is um, has some you know sometimes they diagnose as a schizotypal. You get a, a feeling of a person who really uh, thought he was hearing God and could speak for God, and that God could speak about him, <laughs> Sydney. I mean through Sydney, and uh, you 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 see that time and again with Rigdon when you read his writings. Uh, so Rigdon, I think, uh, was a true believer of himself and that he was really hearing voices from God. I believe he was. So what you're suggesting is that, that Pratt may have completely believed in Rigdon, you know, and, and, and helped collude with this, but not, n- not like as a con man, would, right. but, but, think, but like as a, as right. a believer, like the pious fraud right. type exactly. thing. Exactly. And the Cowdery would have done the same thing then I maybe with Joseph. I, yeah. I totally think that they okay. could have believed him. Yes. I think, I think he was incredibly persuasive. Now, Joseph Smith, on the other hand, um, he may have believed him, but I, for a, for a time. But I I have I, I think Joseph Smith was more cynical. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he was more aware of the ability of people to be gullible, and to be sucked in. And so I think eventually, you know, eventually Joseph Smith does turn the table on Sidney Rigdon, as you pointed out. 
and he takes control. Yeah, and 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 this happens fairly soon, actually. After um, you know, like uh, after the Book of Mormon comes out, and uh, in you know, you've got first Sydney showing up on the scene immediately, <laughs> right? With uh, you know, as 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 basically co-president with Joseph Smith, immediately. <laughs> now, how probable is that? Right. Well, but, there's also an interesting dynamic yeah. that you call the seesaw relationship in your essay. Yes. Right. And, uh, and and the thing that that stuck out to me was that uh, Joseph Smith had a type of personality where if you betrayed him, he would call you a son of perdition. He would do everything he could to destroy you, but he was he was forgiving. Yeah. And so yes. uh, the first one I thought of was Orson Hyde. Yes. Uh, you know who testified to the Missourians and, and got Joseph thrown in jail. Orson Hyde came back, but he demoted him. Like, he put him at the bottom of the rung. He yep. took his wife. Yeah. <laughs> he took his wife in the process. Yeah, I'll, I'll forgive you. It'll just cost you your wife. And, then, and that's what Joseph would do. He would, he would forgive, but he would, you, you, would, you wouldn't come back at the same status. But with Rigdon, Rigdon tried to take over the church in 1832. Uh, but he, every time that he came back, he was reinstated at a pretty high position or the same as he was before, which... Yeah. I think me is indicative of, of, of a guy who's got something on Joseph. Well, and the other thing is that Rigdon was the guy who lays the golden eggs. <laughs> I mean, if you look at when we look at the Book of Commandments, unlike the Book of Mormon, in the Book of Mormon we see all these different. We see Spalding in the Book of Mormon. We see Pratt in the Book of Mormon. We do not see Pratt. We do not see Spalding in the Book of Commandments. They're not there. They're not there in the attributions. We're including them as candidate authors. They're not there. So in other words, it's a three person, it's a three, it's three people who write the book of commandments. The first part of the doctrine and covenants, the first, you know, 60, uh, chapter, the 65 chapters of the, of the book of commandments. Those are all Rigdon Smith and Cowdery. And it's not like the book of Mormon. It's different. So I, I want to go back to a comment you made uh, a while ago when you were talking about Cowdery coming in as translator and how that process just sped up because they didn't have to, right. you know, fool anybody. So, right. I mean, that, that would suggest that Cowdery was pretty well in on it and not, not like he was a fervent believer in Joseph the way that Pratt was of, of Rigdon, right? Well, wait a minute. Okay. <laughs> you see, suppose the document that they had came from that time period in Bainbridge, which we, that's what we believe, right? They had this, they had this document, um, it's coming from Rigdon. Let's put it this way. It's coming from Rigdon, material from Rigdon. And if Cowdery believes that Rigdon really does hear voices and things from God, mm-hmm. then he may accept that this has already been, and, and if he participated in, in, the eight, in the 1826 activities, he may actually believe that this is ratified, certified, ratified from God. And so he dictates to Smith. Now, at some point, he starts realizing uh and we, and so, so actually, one of the things that makes me think he was a, a dupe, at least for a time, is that he, he later follows Hiram Page. You know, Hiram Page has a seer stone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hiram Page has a seer stone, and, and he goes off and follows Hiram Page for a while. Um, uh, we're probably coming to a close here, but uh, uh, there was, this is a question I, I wanted to get in early, uh, earlier before we started in. Um, because I think this is an important question. This is, this is a question I, or something I hear a lot from ex-Mormons, um, and uh, it was kind of my position before I came across your stuff, was, is, you know, the Book of Mormon, just by looking at the text itself, it's a demonstrable, obvious 19th century fraud. 
Mm-hmm. Um, why does it matter to you so much uh, to, to spend? Because you're a Stanford professor, you got a family, um, you got papers to grade, lectures to prepare, <laughs> you're in research. Yeah. Why? Why is it so important to you to spend all of this extra time and energy trying to find evidence to support uh, this theory? Well, I mean, let's suppose that you were in the Bernie Madoff family and uh, you came upon some records that indicated that he was um, that he was carrying out a fraud of massive proportions. Right. And you really believed that this was a huge fraud of massive proportions and it did harm to people. Uh, and uh, led them to be live less authentic lives, and led them to be controlled by, led them to be controlled essentially, uh, to take actions they wouldn't take otherwise, uh, to give money where they wouldn't give it otherwise. Um, you know, how would you? How, what would you do? I mean, so I, I think of it as something like that. And for me, um, I have, I actually, I hate it when people call me anti-Mormon. Let me just say that I really, I really hate it. Um, because I don't feel that I'm anti-Mormon. I'm, some of the people I love the most in the world are Mormon, and I don't, I'm not anti-them. I can tell you that. Um, and so, I, what I wanted, uh, what I want to be, is pro um, pro getting uh, the truth out to people. Um, you know, uh, not anti-Mormon. I just I hate that word. Yeah. So um, I because I actually want to be pro-Mormon <laughs> in the sense that I want to tell the, I want to get the truth out to people I care about. And now I don't want to force that on anybody, and I'm not interested in that. If, if someone is uh, happy where they are, fine. Uh, but if someone is curious and or is struggling uh, with um, trying to live within uh, the the box or the narrative of Mormonism, and uh, they find it really disheartening and difficult for them, um, then they they deserve to know the truth. <laughs> you know, if if you are Bernie, May, if you are some poor person who is giving money or trying to invest money with Bernie Madoff and then you lose everything. You lose your family and everything because you did all that. You trusted him. Um, That's an extreme case. But, you know, uh, there are people who give a lot of money to the church, a lot of time to the church and um, and are and pay a price for that. And uh, that's not everyone. There are people who are happy where they are, and that's fine. I I don't if they don't look at my stuff that I'm not bothered by that. I just wanted to. I just would like to get information out that will help people who want to understand where things came from, where their tribe, how their tribe originated and developed, and and um, and will find it uh, free, liberating for them. I hope that's my hope. Well, perfect. That that, that was really. It was, is there anything more? Craig, that, that you wanted to cover that we didn't? I know, you know, when, when we were first corresponding, you were a little concerned that we were going to set this up as some kind of a false dichotomy. Do you want to say anything to, to that extent? You know, I, I actually want to say, I guess, as I, I would like to extend an olive branch to the people who think of Smith as sole author in the sense that we're not saying, we, we, we actually do in, in Mormon Lakes chapter six or episode six, you see it. We, we do identify places that looks like like Joseph Smith contributed, and and they're the places you, you kind of expect, really, uh, places like where he, Joseph is is talking about, you know, him being the, uh, you know, where there's this prophecy of Joseph talking about Joseph the patriarch, uh, you know, and yeah, Joseph uh, and son that, of Joseph, right? Joseph son of Joseph would be this great, like unto Moses kind of thing, um, you know. This there's, there's the dream, which yeah, is, uh, Joseph yeah, there's. 
there's some key things where you would say, God, it makes sense if this was Joseph Smith. All this, the gazellum stuff, the, tre- the sinking treasure stuff, that chapter goes to Joseph Smith. Right. I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing chapters that go to Joseph Smith and make sense. We're seeing chapters that go to Oliver Cowdery that fit a pattern, too. So, and, 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 and because now you're talking about a thematic comparison and not just the yes. word comparison. So those right. match, the themes match up with, with your, with the words yeah, the as well. Th- yeah, I'm saying the themes seem, I mean, you, the themes seem reasonable. They make sense for the peak character, for the assignments of the chapters, yeah. by and large. I mean, I won't say that it's every time, but it, it's, there seems to be a broad, broad pattern. If, I was, if someone were to say to me, which chapter in the Book of Mormon do you think Joseph Smith wrote? I would have said the one about prophesying about Joseph. I would have said that. That would be the first one I'd pick. And then the second one I would pick, without knowing anything about word prints, the second one I'd pick would be Sinking Treasures, Sunken Treasures. Right. I would definitely pick that. <laughs> and then the third one I'd pick would be Gazellum, you know? I mean, uh, you know, the, the Searstone Gazellum, you know, Gazellum, because he used that like as a code name. I, w- I mean, I would, there are certain chapters I would just pick out right away. I'd probably say, these are, those are, I think, would be Joseph Smith. And we, and we hit him. And, and that was just with text analysis, looking at frequent word usage. Now, I have to say, too, the Cowdery and Smith signals are really close. So I think we have trouble distinguishing uh, the voice of Cowdery from Smith, and probably because probably because Cowdery was editing some of Smith's stuff. Yeah, acting as scribe, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think they uh, that's why they look that way. And I also need to say that it's possible that somebody's going to find uh, evidence for other documents that we're missing at, our, at Mormon Leaks. It's possible. I mean... I don't think we've shut the door. It's still an open question, uh, and, and there's more to be, a lot more to be still figured out about this. And, and so I don't want to say there's an airtight, that we have nothing. Uh, you know, there's, a lot, there's still a lot to learn is what I guess the other thing I want to say about that. I don't remember um, specifically because, you know, your word print graphs are, you know, covering the whole Book of Mormon, so it's hard to parse out. But the chapter... Um, of Lehi's dream, does that does that come up in Joseph's uh, style? Um, I want to say that the interpretation of the dream comes up in Rigdon. The interpret, you know, there's Nephi's uh, chapter eleven. Yeah, the Nephi's, and I think the other one. Um, I, I'd have to go back, but it's I think it's Pratt, uh, and uh, that's interesting. Actually, I think it's Pratt, but I'd have to check on the Lehi's dream. Yeah, it might be Spalding, but I think it's Pratt. And so Pratt, actually, we're going to talk more about him in the next episode. Uh, he's very interesting and very interesting, actually. And um, I don't know if I, how much I want to say about that, but there's more to come. Cool. But, see. Yeah. Okay. I'd like to thank Craig for taking the time to come on and talk us through this theory. There's a lot of substance here to be considered and nothing that should just be casually dismissed. Now, there's a reason I'm saying that. We've already recorded our panel discussion for part three of this three-part series, and let's just say it got a little spirited. Now, in addition to that panel discussion, I want to include more voices and more opinions, so I'm asking for your help. I've already asked several friends from the podcasting world to chime in with their opinions, and I want to extend the same offer to as many of you who want to weigh in on this yourself. Now, I'm not looking for expert opinions here, just listener response to four basic questions. One, do you think the Book of Mormon authorship is an important question to consider? Two, what stood out to you the most from these first two episodes? Three, is there anything that you think we missed, something that should have been considered that wasn't? And four, who do you think wrote the Book of Mormon? 
So if you want to be involved, contact us through our Facebook page or through our website. We have a submit tab up in the top right corner of the page. Give us your information and we'll get in touch with you. But there isn't a lot of time, so get it to us before Wednesday, October 16th, and we'll do what we can to publish it. All right? And before signing off, I want to thank those of you who have been filling out our survey. We currently have 132 responses, and they help us understand who you are and what you want to hear. So we'll keep that up for a while. So go to our website and fill it out if you haven't already. Or just go take a minute to look through the published results. Some pretty interesting stuff. And finally, a special thanks to those of you rating us on iTunes, my personal favorite kind of feedback. We currently have 29 out of 29 five-star reviews, and I'd love to keep that streak alive. I also love reading the different reviews that people post there. So here's the most recent one from Ron P. on October 9th. Ron says, Solid gold, irreverent, humorous, unorthodox podcast about issues surrounding Mormonism. I'm not talking about the boring stuff you hear at church. These guys talk about the crazy stuff, stuff the church would rather keep under wraps. You know, the fun stuff. Well, thanks, Ron. I think it's the fun stuff, too. And I'm really happy to be getting this kind of feedback and also the listener essays that have been contributing to the content of our podcast. So please keep sending them in. And thanks again for listening. Randy, do you have anything you want to add? Anyone for the closing prayer? (laughs) (laughs) I like that reaction. Oh my gosh, that's great. <laughs> you guys have done this. All about the Lamanites in ancient history. Long ago, our fathers came from far across the sea. Give this land if they live righteously. Lamanites met others who were seeking their Thank you for listening to. Prince on Thrones.